Hello and welcome to Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet, a podcast about materials, the making instinct and a craftful life. Welcome to episode 18 of this podcast, whether you are a returning listener or tuning in for the first time. For anybody who is here for the first time, I'm Meg and I'm based in London in the UK. I publish two types of podcast episodes, shorter scrapbook style ones in which I focus on random aspects of my making practice, and I mean making in the widest possible sense, and then also more extensive reflective ones like today's episode. In these longer exploratory episodes, I use recent making projects to explore not just the materials and process of my making, but also the tension between my love of making and my concerns about environmental and ethical issues. Just as the name of the podcast suggests, curiosity is at the heart of all my reflections. If you want to follow my activities between episodes, you can find me on Instagram as Mrs M Curiosity Cabinet, and that is with an underscore between each word and on Ravelry as Meg, a.k.a. Mrs M, and that is with a hyphen between each word. I'll link this information and anything I mention in the podcast in my show notes, which are available on my blog, mrsmscuriositycabinet.com. So what do I have in store today? I have an update on my no-nylon sock experiment. We'll be sharing details of a garden-based fibre experiment. I'll also talk a bit about experimenting from an economic perspective and then finish up with some inspiring gems. So I hope you have a making project and a drink to hand, and let's begin. A couple of years ago, shortly after starting this podcast, I devised a sock experiment so I could explore the viability of nylon-free socks. As most knitters know, a lot of the yarn marketed as sock yarn contains anything from 10 to 25% of nylon to add strength to the fibre. Nylon, also known as polyamide, is a synthetic polymer-based fibre derived from oil, and it is a relatively recent fibre in the history of mankind. As a curious soul, and knowing that socks or hose have been worn for many, many centuries, I wondered how non-nylon socks would hold up. So I set about testing various nylon-free yarns, and to achieve some kind of measurable results, I tested their wear and tear against a newly knit control pair or rather, several control pairs. As it's been almost two years since I started the experiment, I thought I would update you on my conclusions so far. In the first year, I knit three experimental pairs with the following yarns. Blacker Yarns Mohair Blend, which is a blend of 50% mohair and 50% Hebridean or Manx Lochten wool. Whistlebear's Cuthbert Sock Yarn, which is a blend of 80% mohair and 20% Wensleydale wool and a Paul Dorset lambswool yarn produced by Northern Yarn, which unfortunately seems to have been discontinued. Mohair is often referred to as nature's nylon because of its strength, so it made sense to kick off the experiment with the yarn blends involving mohair. I also knit a control pair using some Bergère de France gummi that I had in my wool pantry, which contained 75% of unspecified wool and 25% nylon. As I wanted to ensure I was comparing like for like as much as possible, I limited myself to two knitting patterns in year one. Claire Devine's Planum socks, which is a simple sock with a turn-down rib cuff, and Luli's ankle socks with ventilation, a delightful sock pattern with one of Lee's typically no-nonsense names. 
I started by keeping a meticulous list of how many wares I was submitting each pair to, but as the list soon detached itself from my wardrobe door, I ended up simply rotating the socks through the same cycle to keep matters simple. As I only had a small hand-knit sock drawer, this was actually relatively easy. I kept half an eye on the experimental pairs as I hand-washed them, and after 12 months carried out a real assessment of how they were objectively wearing. I noticed that the Cuthbert sock yarn pair had developed a hole below the ball of the foot on one sock. The blacker mohair pair was starting to wear thin below the ball of the foot on one sock as well. And the northern yarn pole dorset socks were wearing like an armoured tank. To my amazement, however, the nylon-based gumi socks had worn through on both socks, below the ball of one foot and on both heels. I tried to darn them up, but as the fabric had worn so thin, they struggled to hold the darn, so these socks fell out of the rotation by the end of year one. I was a little disappointed that both the mohair pairs were showing signs of real wear after a year, especially the whistlebear socks, as the cusput sock yarn is quite pricey. But I have to admit my disappointment was tempered by a number of factors. To start with, I had very few pairs of handmade socks, so I was rotating them at an intensive rate with each pair being worn between 60 to 65 times that year. Secondly, as I don't drive, I walk everywhere, so my socks undergo pretty serious wear and tear. And thirdly, although the mohair socks did show signs of wear, they held up considerably better than the nylon control pair. As I value the materials, but also really enjoyed the coziness of the mohair socks, I darned both so I could get more wear out of them for a bit longer. By the second winter of the experiment, I had added three more test pairs to the experiment and a new control pair. For the new test pairs, I used the following yarns. Triscallion Skilfing Sock Yarn. This is a four-ply weight wool blend consisting of 50% Blueface Leicester, 25% Gotland and 25% Wensleydale. These luster long wools are worsted spun with extra twist for durability. This wool comes in 100 gram skeins which contain 350 metres and currently cost £19 per skein. I use this yarn to knit another pair of ankle socks with ventilation. The second test pair of 2019 was a pair of Plainham socks knit using Retrosaria's Mondim wool, a 100% fine Portuguese wool. Balls of 100 gram contain 385 metres of worsted spun yarn and cost £9 in the UK or €9 Euros directly from Retrosaria in Portugal. The third test pair was in Phileas Yarns 80% Blue Face Leicester 20% Bamboo Blend. This yarn was not specifically advertised for socks, but as bamboo is a vast fibre known for its strength, I thought it was worth trying it, so I knit another pair of Plainham socks. The yarn comes in 100 grams or 400 metre skeins and costs £15. I also tried Ovis Etc's Ignea yarn, which is a blend of 80% wool, 20% silk and 20% Raimi. Raimi, derived from a kind of nettle, is one of the strongest natural fibres and has been around for thousands of years. The Ignea yarn is a slightly lighter four-ply weight yarn at 425 metres per 100 gram skein and it currently retails at €23. Euros. I had to have bought this test pair midway through though. The yarn felt beautiful in the skein and strong and soft in the knitted fabric, but I found knitting with this yarn on fine needles extremely painful on my hands due to Raimi's lack of elasticity. 
I should add that the level of pain I experienced was probably almost entirely due to my fibromyalgia, so I certainly wouldn't want to put anybody else off trying it. Finally, I knit a control pair with a 75% superwash BFL 25% nylon blend that I dyed myself. This nylon blend was higher in twist than the gumi wool of my first short-lived control pair. For this second control pair, I used Luli's stock with holes pattern, as I knew I wanted to add another design into the experiment. It's a simple lace pattern, but it reminds me of the socks of my childhood, which always seemed to be completely indestructible. I dropped the new socks into my rotation of partly darned socks, and continued to rotate them in sequence. I wore socks for most of 2019, as the summer really wasn't much to write home about. So come January 2020, each pair had been subjected to approximately 45 to 50 wears. I'm glad to say that the new test socks, as well as a control pair, seem to be holding up in equal measure. This could suggest that the three test yarns are performing better than the mohair blends of year one. I suspect this is true as the test pairs and control pairs are made of yarn with more twist than the mohair blends. However, I should add a couple of qualifiers. Each pair was being worn slightly less than the year one pairs due to me having more socks in, in a slightly longer rotation. Also, health-wise, there were some ups and downs in 2019, so I probably didn't venture out quite as much as I had done the year before. This meant that the new socks weren't exposed to walking in shoes quite as much as my 2018 socks had been. So I have a hunch that due to the yarn construction, the Skilfing socks and the Mondin socks will probably outperform the ones I knit in the mohair blends the year before. But I certainly don't want to oversell their potential durability, as I was only counting days worn rather than hours subjected to walking in shoes. The Phileas yarn pair are also holding up well strength-wise. However, as bamboo tends to add drape, and has very little elasticity, I would recommend knitting socks in a bamboo blend at a tighter tension. Either that or using a highly ribbed design so that the socks have some mechanical negative ease to avoid them becoming too baggy. The sock experiment will continue as I need to build up my stock of hand-knitted socks. I currently have a pair of socks with holes in Woolly Mammoth's natural sock yarn on the needles, and of course I will report back again when I have a couple more years under my belt. But there were a couple of other findings and experiences I thought I would share from the first two years of the experiment. Recently, some of my last ready-to-wear socks have worn out. These are socks that I've had for over 10 years, as they were proper running socks and therefore more durable than most fashion socks. But their demise has been quite informative. They were the kind of running socks that are marked with an L and an R as they are shaped differently for each foot. And this fact certainly clarified the wear and tear in my handmade socks. In both the running socks that finally met their end, it was a left hand sock that went first and below the ball of the foot. So there is obviously something in my gait that means I wear my left socks harder than my right ones. This then raises a question, will this insight change how I knit or wear my socks? Going forward, I think I will mark my socks to distinguish the two limbs of the pair so I can consciously alternate which feet I wear the socks on to try to extend the life of the pair. 
Secondly, I went into the sock experiment very much focused on the objective durability of yarn blends. But wearing a variety of blends made me think about how I subjectively experience different sock yarns. That really shouldn't have surprised me as I always talk about the feel of different wools in cardigans and shawls, but it did. Before the sock experiment, I knitted socks almost exclusively in West Yorkshire Spinner's signature four-ply and German sock yarns. Blends that I would describe as no-nonsense and durable rather than super soft or luxurious ones that relied on nylon for strength. As my feet are like hooves due to the wear and tear I subject them to, I've never really seen the point of popping them into socks made of soft, fine walls, and I still don't really. But having worn hand-knit socks from such generic sock yarns for years, it was not until I started experimenting with different blends that I clocked how I enjoyed different features of different blends. Not so much enjoyment in terms of a soft fabric on hard-wearing soles, but rather the support that different yarn blends offered through the arch of my foot, or the cosy comfort in the toes and around the ankle. And also how I enjoyed wearing different types of yarn in different settings. As I have Raynaud's syndrome, I always feel icy cold in my extremities, and all the more so when I am pottering around the house with no shoes on. I found I really appreciated the mohair blends on days when my toes were burning with cold. There is something in these blends, whether it's a slight halo or the air pockets created between the mohair and the other fibre, that has a fabulous warming quality which eases the sting of Reynolds. On days when I'm wearing my Mary Jane buckle-ups or brogue-style lace-ups, I was very grateful for the tightly spun Mondin socks. In many ways, Mondin feels very similar to a no-nonsense German sock yarn or West Yorkshire Spinner's signature four-ply, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way at all. Mondin yarn packs a lot of durability into a relatively fine fabric, so socks in this yarn are quite comfortable in smartish town shoes. Also, as I knit my Mondim socks at a slightly tighter tension than I would a nylon blend sock, the socks weren't tight, but they felt like they had a degree of support through the arch. These insights are, of course, purely subjective and specific to the quirks of my body as well as my own preferences, but they are useful. If I consciously use different types of wool in my wardrobe for garments of different purposes, why not extend that principle to my feet? That may sound a bit indulgent, but as anybody who lives with chronic pain and cold will know, a small tweak that can reduce discomfort a little seriously improves daily well-being. So I will definitely continue to knit mohair blend socks to use as my home socks, even if they may not objectively be quite as durable as another sock blend. And I've also ordered more Mondim yarn, as there will definitely be more socks in this yarn in my future. My urban cottage garden may be tiny, but I always find some space to experiment a little. And one of last year's experimental crops has produced a fibre with a twist, one which is proving remarkably practical around the house. I was inspired by an episode of Gardener's World, a weekly gardening programme on BBC TV. There was a report from Faversham, a town in Kent which is about 80 kilometres or 50 miles southeast of London, on how local gardening projects were focusing on reducing the town's plastic footprint. 
One of these initiatives involved a community garden growing loofah to replace the synthetic sponges they used to scrub plots clean between uses. As gardening and ceramics involve a fair amount of clean-up, from washing plant pots in order to reduce the chance of pests and diseases, to scrubbing dirty clay buckets and pottery tools, I thought I would try my hand at growing my own sponges too. And I thought I would share what I learnt from this experience with you, as well as what I would do differently in 2020. The loofah plant, or loofah cylindrica to use its botanical name, belongs to the same family as cucumbers and courgettes. It has a similar climbing habit as cucumbers and produces plants that look a lot like courgette. If picked young, the fruits can be eaten much like a courgette, but let them grow beyond about 6 inches and they become bitter. Loofah sponges are actually the fibrous skeletons of a fully grown fruit that is left to dry and go to seed. So the key is a long growing season. I sowed the seed in March in large modules on the windowsill. For non-growers, modules are seed trays with individual compartments for each seed. Some sources say that loofah germination can be a bit temperamental, but almost all the seed I sowed germinated. I did sow the seed on their side rather than flat, just as I would a cucumber or courgette seed to avoid the seed rotting in moist compost. Once the plants had produced two sets of real leaves, I potted them on into larger pots, as I knew I would need to keep the plants in the warmth for several months. Real leaves is one of those terms that rolls off the tongue of seasoned gardeners, but can baffle new ones. To put it in simple terms, when seeds germinate, they use a pair of generic leaves to break out of the seed. This first set of leaves is typically relatively small compared to future ones, and rather nondescript in shape. The seed will then put on additional sets of leaves as it grows, and these are the real leaves, the ones with the characteristic shape of the plant in question. Often the germinating leaves will fall off altogether in due course. Whenever transplanting seeds, it's important to wait until there are at least a couple of tiers of real leaves and then to lift the seedlings by holding a real leaf. As loofah plants require warmth, it makes sense to grow them in a greenhouse if you have one, and if you don't, like me, to keep the plants indoors till the weather has warmed up and then place them in a sheltered warm spot in the garden. I kept my plants in till early June before planting them out in pots with lots of new compost against the back wall, which is where my garden gets most of its sun. Also, as they are prolific climbers, I fashioned a climbing frame out of bamboo canes and strings to support them whilst they were growing from the container up to the trellis above my back wall. I planted out three loofah plants, which grew prolifically, putting on lots of flowers, which made me very excited. But then I noticed that the first round of flowers rotted and dropped off. They weren't setting fruit. After a little research, I realised that the first round of flowers were the male flowers. A few weeks later, though, a second round of flowers appeared, and these involved a mix of female and male ones. Although I consciously grow flowers that attract pollinators to my garden, I didn't take any chances as soon as I spotted that I had both male and female flowers on the loofers. I manually pollinated the plants by gently brushing the pollen from one flower onto a differently looking one using a watercolour paintbrush. 
I'll be honest, during my first attempts at manual pollination, I wasn't sure which flowers were male and female, so I just made sure to gently brush the productive parts of the flowers back and forth a couple of times. And sure enough, several days later, I noticed the stem behind certain flowers was becoming steadily more bulbous. I stopped the manual pollination once I realised that the bees had found the loofah plants and were doing nature's job for me. And then I just watched in amazement as sizable fruits grew from the yellow flowers. The plants grew like triffids along the trellis, producing about 8 to 10 fruit per plant by the height of summer. By late August, though, growth had slowed down and the plants seemed to reject some of the newer fruits with them rotting off. By the end of October, the plants had all but stagnated with about four medium-large fruits and another half-dozen small to medium-sized ones that I left on the plant to dry out. Ideally, I would have liked all fruits to grow to maturity and go to seed, i.e. dry out enough for the seeds to detach themselves automatically from the dried-out loofah membrane. But come late November, it was clear that the garden was too damp for them to dry out any further, so I ended up picking the plants and drying them in a dehydrator. I knew that the seeds were dry when I could shake the, the fruit and hear the seeds rattle. At this point, I peeled off the skin and collected the seeds, running a chopstick through the loofah membrane chamber to make sure I had got all seeds out. Finally, I sliced the loofah into chunks for use at the kitchen sink, in the garden and in my studio. I should add that my loofah sponges don't look nearly as appealing as anything you would find in a toiletry department of the chemists. Partly this is because they are not as plump, but mostly it's because my loofah aren't bleached the way commercially available ones are. As avoiding unnecessary chemicals is at the core of my growing philosophy, there was no way I was going to plunge my loofah into a bucket of bleach. And quite frankly, my seed pots and ceramic tools really don't mind being scrubbed clean by something that doesn't look particularly pretty. So will I be growing loofah again this year? Absolutely. There is something really empowering about making or growing our own consumables and tools, and I do like tossing well-worn kitchen cloths and floor rags onto the compost at the end of their knife. So I will enjoy doing the same with the loofahs in due course. But I will be making some changes. This year I will be growing the loofah in what passes as our front garden. It's a narrow strip of land of about a half a metre by three and a half metres, or about two by eleven foot. But as the plants grow vertically, I plan to grow them up the railings and then onto a trellis on the front wall. The front of our house is southeastly facing, so this wall heats up first in spring and benefits from more sunlight than anywhere in the back garden. This should allow me to make the most of whatever sun and heat we get this year. The next major difference is to grow more plants but to stop them early to give the fruit that form in early summer more chance of growing to maturity. To stop a plant simply means pinching out the growing tips, in the loofah's case probably after five to six fruit have set. With fewer fruit on each plant, all the plant's energy can then be concentrated into growing the fruit on the plant rather than making more fruit. Stopping is a technique typically used with tomatoes or melons for exactly the same reason. Thirdly, I will be much more diligent in applying regular feeds. I don't like buying synthetic feeds as I try to avoid fossil fuel based products in the garden and I don't want to buy more stuff in plastic than necessary, so instead I will be making two teas. 
I plan to use nettle tea, which is high in nitrogen, for the first few months while the plants are establishing their vines and leaves, i.e. the leafy green part of the plant. And later in the season, once the loofah has started to set fruit, I will apply a comfrey tea, which is rich in phosphorus and potassium. I'll make nettle tea out of forage stinging nettles. For the comfrey tea, I will use comfrey pellets. You can actually grow comfrey quite easily, but it is rampant, so in a small garden it would just take over. The teas are simple to make. I simply steep the plant matter in water and leave it in a covered container for several months. The cover is important though as both teas reek to the heavens. And then to apply it, you just dilute a cup of this in with the water that you use to water the plants. Growing loofah is still an experiment for me, but I find growing my own consumables and tools incredibly inspiring and empowering, all the more so when it means I can cut out disposable plastic products. I would therefore love to encourage the green-fingered amongst you to join me with this experiment and try your hand at growing your own sponges. I've therefore decided to run a little giveaway to share some of the seed that I collected from last year's crop. Due to the regulations governing the import and export of seeds, I'm afraid this giveaway has to be limited to UK-based listeners. But I plan to give away six to eight small packs of loofah seeds for anybody who wants to join in. To enter this giveaway, please leave a comment either on the Instagram notice accompanying this podcast or the blog post containing the show notes and tell me one of the following things. Either, what is the most adventurous, unusual, surprising, edible or practical crop you have grown in your garden or on your allotment? Or, if you've not tried your hand at growing unusual crops before, what conditions do you plan to grow your experimental loofers in? I'll leave this giveaway open till the vernal equinox, so the 20th or 21st of March, and uh, then I will draw winners. So I hope you can join in, and good luck! There is another type of experiment I would like to talk about, prompted by a recent development I've seen in the knitting sphere, as well as a rereading of a book I found very inspiring. In particular, grassroots, environmental, social and or economic experiments. As someone who researches environmental strategy and sustainable development, I have been following, analysing and championing these kind of grassroots experiments for years. Last year there were some online exchanges about the pricing of knitting and crochet patterns and the many tensions between current pricing levels, living wages for designers, affordability of and access to patterns for all, work opportunities for those who might otherwise fall outside the traditional job market and dignity for those living in poverty. Against the background of these sometimes heated discussions, a number of designers introduced a sliding scale of prices to allow for a pay-what-you-can approach. And since then, a number of designers and yarn dyers have also started to develop community funds to allow wider access to their patterns, their workshops and hand-dyed yarns. I've been watching these developments as well as the responses and language around them with interest as to me they are part of a wider body of grassroots sustainability experiments where people around the globe are recognising that the current models are not serving us, our communities and the planet particularly well and are therefore experimenting with other ways of meeting our needs and wants in ways that are kinder to other people and the wider environment. 
In this context, I thought I would share a recommendation for a book I recently reread called Incredible Plant Veg Grower Revolution by Pam Warhurst and Joanna Dobson. This book tells the story of Incredible Edible Todmorden, a grassroots initiative that has resulted in the development of a broad ecosystem of projects around food, plants, community and economics in a market town in Yorkshire, and that has inspired similar but different grassroots initiatives around the world. There are several reasons why Incredible Edible Todmorden is an inspiring experiment, and the book contains insights and ideas that could apply well beyond the sphere of food growing projects and Yorkshire. A key importance is that from its very beginning, Pam Warhurst, a no-nonsense northern woman with a background in local government, and Joanna Dobson, a social worker who'd been raised in care and works with the disenfranchised on a daily basis, knew that the approach had to be truly inclusive. They also knew that they had to lead by example. For example, in the early days, Joanna Dobson knocked down the wall to her small front garden, learnt to grow vegetables and did so in full sight of others. These two forces of nature also knew that they had to start with action and enthusiasm rather than wait for somebody to give them permission or money or worry about policies. Importantly, Todmorden was not an affluent town. As traditional industries had died out, many left the town for other opportunities. Neither is Todmorden blessed with good weather. Rain and floods are common due to the town's general location and its specific geography. In that sense, what evolved in this northern market town demonstrates that local produce, nutritious food, community resilience and revitalising a local economy can happen anywhere. These are not the preserve of affluent middle-class suburbs or picturesque villages. From my perspective, a major factor in the sustainability and resilience of the incredible edible approach is that from the start, Palm Warhurst knew that local experiments would have to include action around three issues, environment, community and economics. Not only creating three splitting plates of activities, but connections, opportunities and resilience between the various initiatives. I often hear people comment that things aren't inclusive or worthy if there's not a clear direct line between purchaser and seller. Such complaints are totally understandable and often stem from frustration, but this kind of silo thinking is not necessarily the most helpful approach. After all, an ecosystem is strong because of the many chains of reinforcing relationships. As the story of Todmorden shows, durable improvements are possible when experiments in one area, like Growing community-accessible vegetables locally empowers individuals not only to change their own eating habits, but establish small food businesses of their own. Or that by creating connections between small local food producers and the cook of a local failing school, food can be brought into the heart of the curriculum, create pride in the school, improve grades all round, and even result in the development of further learning qualifications, apprenticeships and job opportunities that cultivating a vibrant, inclusive local food-growing environment can create work briefs for artists and designers, can improve ties with vulnerable communities, for example care home residents, but also strengthen relationships with stakeholders who are often regarded as distant, like doctors, local authority employees and even the police. 
Another thing that Pam and Joanna highlight is not just that relationships matter, but that it's possible to find allies, supporters and partners in the most unexpected places. For example, estate agents and businesses that had no direct interest in growing food were happy to provide support for materials, tools and even skills share as they realised that improving the town in general and a greater visibility of the relevance of their business to the community are good for business as well as employee morale. Online spaces like those related to knitting, fibre, sewing, insert the craft of your choice quite frankly, can often be siloed off and even polarised between various competing priorities. Looking at other grassroots initiatives and making experiments then, like those in Incredible Edible Todmorden, can be an inspiring reminder that although the priorities that motivate individuals may vary, people can often coalesce around common experiments that aim to improve the daily conditions, environment and economics of an area. I've seen this myself, mostly in the community energy sector, but also in the growing sector. The book Incredible Plant Veg Grow a Revolution, published by Matador in 2014, is an inspiring tale of what is possible, and every time I reread this book, it reinvigorates me to roll up my sleeves a bit more. This book was published some years ago via a crowdfunder, not surprisingly, and unfortunately there hasn't been a second print run, so if you want to get your hands on a copy, you're best off checking secondhand sellers. There's also a digital version of this book, so I am very reluctantly linking to Amazon, so you can source a digital version if that's what you prefer. If you want to get more of a flavour of the thinking behind Incredible Edible Todmorden, check out the TED Talk, Pam Warhurst, How We Can Eat Our Landscapes, to learn more. I see involvement in community, whether local or sectoral, and grassroots experiments beyond the immediacy of my own making as a very real extension of my life as a maker. I know that many people in the fibre, sewing, making, growing etc spaces are already involved in, support or champion grassroots experiments around making, repairing, growing, skill sharing, community building and so on. If you are interested in this kind of making and experimenting and are able to do so, I would thoroughly encourage you to check out what grassroots initiatives are happening near you. There may be community growing schemes, something like Incredible Edible, or a transition town, or maybe a community-supported agriculture scheme, or possibly a scheme trying to bring back a community orchard. Or there might be local repair cafes, tool libraries, or a bicycle co-op that runs workshops on bike repair. Maybe there's a local social enterprise trying to get a community energy project up and running, a fibre mill, or a local bakery off the ground, or maybe even bring an old disused cinema back into public use. And if you can't find anything in your neighbourhood already, but are inspired, the possibilities for experimenting really are endless. I wanted to share a few inspiring gems this month that link into the topic of experimenting, and one of the underlying reasons why I think there is currently a great need to experiment. That is, to mend some of the worst excesses, be they environmental, social or economic, of the current economic model that is obsessed with endless growth despite us living in, on a planet of finite resources. The first inspiring gem is the January episode of Garden Weeds and Words. I've recommended Tim O'Brien's podcast before, and it's always worth listening to, but his recent conversation with Alice Fowler, a gardening writer, was like a tonic at a time that things were feeling particularly bleak. 
The conversation meandered through topics such as growing for food and biodiversity, ecological damage, liminal spaces, herbariums, orally transmitted female plant wisdom, challenging the patriarchy, and hope through action. It was a soothing balm, not by ignoring the scale of the environmental damage or denying our own shared responsibility in it, but in accepting that precisely because of that shared responsibility, we are all well-placed to play an active role in experimenting with and demanding change. The second inspiring gem is an essay on the Plant Hunter website, written in response to the appalling bushfires in Australia that have ripped through whole ecosystems, causing loss of life and habitat. In Breathing Fire, Georgia Reed's frustration and anger about the damage to the land and species are palpable, but she channels these emotions to focus on the remedying forces our planet so desperately needs and that we can all tap into. Two other experimenting minds have also been inspiring me recently. They are active in very different media and on very different scales, but their efforts are no less inspiring or worthy because of that. One of them is the ever-inspiring fibre artist, illustrator and curious soul Sarah C. Sweat of the blog A Field Guide to Stitches. In recent months, she has been experimenting with spinning and weaving from a waste product, in particular used coffee filters. This work is relatively small in scale, often taking the form of small woven squares to cover tiny hand-bound notebooks. I love watching where Sarah's curious mind about waste, materials, colour and processes takes her. She approaches experimentation and discovery with an almost impish delight and wonder. At a more macro level, I have also recently been inspired by the approach and work of Chilean architect Alejandro Aravena. In the world of infrastructure, especially publicly procured infrastructure, there is often a mindset of do what we've done before. As public money is involved, that's totally understandable. Business as usual and do what's been done before are more likely to pass decision-making procedures that are due to their nature risk-averse. What's interesting about Aravena's architectural solutions is that he and his design bureau, Elemental SA, look at briefs like social housing or flood defences from a different perspective. They ask different questions, not just what, but how and why. They involve the community in the process of shaping the brief and the solutions. They find ways to link up different public bodies and departments with their specific policy briefs and set budgets to deliver architectural solutions that don't just meet an infrastructural brief but can improve well-being and reinforce community. There are many online sources about Aravena's work. I would recommend a couple of videos as a starting point. There is his TEDx talk, Alejandro Aravena, My Architectural Philosophy, and the documentary Alejandro Aravena, Interview to Design is to Prefer. Obviously, many of those of us who make in a domestic setting or in a hobby context are not necessarily weavers or hands-on makers in the sphere of built environment. But that's not to say that we can't all learn from the open-minded, curious, experimental mindset of people like Sarah or Alejandro, whether it's in our making practice, domestic life, working environment or community engagement.
I suspect I will be revisiting experimenting in various forms in the coming months and years because experimenting is a natural consequence of my curiosity. The more I ask questions about the materials and making that flow through my life, the more I both experiment myself and I'm curious about what other people are doing singularly, collectively, in different and unusual or novel contexts. I think that is enough for this episode. I will be back in a couple of weeks with a short scrapbook episode and if technology plays ball the next full episode should see me in conversation with a maker whose work and an outlook I admire. So until the next time I hope you enjoy lots of pleasant hours of making whatever your medium may be.